Okay, uh, before we start tonight, would you lead us in prayer, please? <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for all things that you've done for each other. We thank you for our friendships. We thank you for Jesus, that he died for each other. Be with us in all things and help us to defeat sin in our lives. As we study tonight, help us to meditate on the things that we study. Use those good things in our lives. In Jesus' name. <coughs> okay, what we're going to try, really, uh, we was talking about last week we covered Galatians in one setting with the, the introduction and all. We're going to try that with Ephesians in an overall view. In other words, we recognize that we won't go into meticulous detail on every single verse and all and get it in one setting. So we're going to get it in an overall view. But it is going to be, I say try it, because it's going to be a little more difficult with Ephesians than Galatians. Uh, Galatians had one primary thing that it dealt with uh, through the whole the whole book, and that is the, the law in contrast with uh, salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Uh, Ephesians has uh, several things that it deals with and along with that. Uh, when Paul writes, let's get the setting first with Ephesus to the best that we can ascertain. Ephesians was written somewhere around 60 A.D. And when you first uh, read of it as a place in the New Testament in Acts 19, and Paul had just established the church at Corinth in Acts 18. And we remember the church at Corinth was established right about 50, early 50 to early 51 A.D. Then we have Paul coming into Ephesus, and he meets a group of people there that have been taught by Apollos. And Paul teaches those people and, and baptizes them. And then after he baptizes them, he lays hands on them and imparts these various gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then go, goes his way. There's some more teaching, he goes his way. Then in Acts, the 20th chapter, you read about Paul uh, calling the elders from Ephesus together and, and talking with them. So we can see that there's been growth to the point that they actually have elders or pastors within the church itself. Now, give you an idea of the background. Ephesus uh, was a very prominent city of that day, one of the more prominent ones, a very prestigious city, and it was also known for its idol worship all over that area. And just outside of Ephesus, they had the temple to the goddess Diana. And this was, and in Ephesus, one of the greatest businesses was the making of idols to the goddess Diana. In fact, they made all kinds of household side, side idols, uh, house-size idols and big public idols, and they sold them all over the country. And that was a, that was a real big business. So you can see, if you go into town and and start teaching that God is a spirit, and not to be represented with idols and things like that, obviously you're going to have a lot of business interest against you right at first. I mean, to say the least. And so they, it's known for its idol worship. Not only was it known for its idol worship, which means you're going to have strong opposition there and all the business factors that were there, but its immorality. Uh, the goddess Diana was a fertility goddess, and the way she was worshipped was by fornication. And so what, she, what they had is that you would have these hundreds of uh, female cult prostitutes who were there at the temple, and, and the men would go in and have relations with them, fornic fornications, and and this constituted worship to her. 
And this was the fertility goddess. Uh, Baal was the male fertility god. And the way he was worshipped was through the adultery. By the way, they didn't just have uh, uh, at this, the, the emphasis was on the female, but some of them also had the male cult prostitutes. And so they actually worshipped this idolatrous god through the act of fornication or just uh, the, the sexual relationship. And they had great big orgies out there. And that's their worship. Well, you can imagine what kind of a situation you have. You go into a, uh, the most sexually permissive uh, area possible. In other words, if you worship your God by committing fornication, then obviously there's nothing wrong with it. And so the whole city is full of fornication. Uh, that uh, People having relations all over. There's no such thing as a husband-wife relationship in the way that we know it now. There's no, no respect for sexuality at all. That the people could very easily live in a commune situation. They could very easily in, engage in husband swapping or wife swapping or anything like that. And so here is the decayed, immoral place. Well, this is why that when you get into Paul's letter, you're going to have this statement of light contrasted with darkness. This was morally an extremely dark atmosphere, and then here he comes in with the light of the gospel. Well, first, before that you could show the need for Jesus, uh, you got to get people convinced that they're in sin. And so Paul had to convince them that, number one, that this idol worship was wrong, and Diana was a fraud, and then also that the very things that they did in worship was ungodly and wrong and contrary to the way that he's even going to deal with the man's relationship to the wife here and the fact that God's intention that they that the, the husband leave and the wife and they cleave and become one flesh and things like that and talk about their relationship. This is an absolutely unique teaching to them. Our, our point, is, point is this. From the standpoint of evidences of the inspiration of this book, from the standpoint of evidences, that these Ephesians actually seen or actually saw the miracles that Paul reportedly did and actually received uh, those miraculous gifts and everything like that. The, one of the greatest evidences is the, the effect itself. Uh, for every effect there's a cause. And somebody that's going to deny the miraculous or the inspiration of Paul is going to have to deal with the fact how did this man, Paul, go into this ungodly place that had a lifestyle like we just talked about and by the hundreds caused people to renounce Diana, renounce their past religion, renounce their past moral life, acknowledge the fact that they were immoral and they were in sin and their whole way of life was wrong and they were in darkness and then to repent and put their trust in Jesus and make the decision to become Christians and accept a way of life that was totally, totally different from what they had before. How, how's that going to happen? Well, uh, to appreciate it, you'd have to think about somebody just going in with nothing but words today, with moral reasoning, and going to Harlem, or Watts, or someplace like that, and then get out there and reason with those people, and as a result of reasoning with those people, begin to persuade thousands of them to change their whole lifestyle. Well, we know that doesn't happen. The government throws everything they can in the way of money and psychologists and psychiatrists and everything else at Watts and Harlem and all those places and gets no result whatsoever, that it just simply doesn't work. And, and, and in fact, it's interesting that uh, there's a lot of studies going on today of counseling and psychology and things that, 
there is no proof that those people ever alter anybody's behavior. Uh, one study that uh, I mentioned at church a few weeks back that uh, was done of criminals, uh, people who had criminal behavior, they went back into their youth and they studied two large groups, very large groups. Uh, I think there was each about 350 each. And they followed them from their youth all the way into adulthood. And the, the, here's the way the groups were divided. There was this 350 that had received professional counseling and psychiatric help during those young years when they were breaking the law and, and having children outside of marriage and things of that nature. These other 350 received no counseling or psychiatric help whatsoever. And they come along and look at them 30 years later, and they find no difference. In fact, among those that received the counseling and psychiatric help, they were actually more apt to be guilty of violent crimes or suicides or things of that nature than this other group. But there was no difference there. Another study has shown that with all the millions and millions of dollars that we have thrown at rehabilitation of prisoners, and, and you know, we've, we've had a philosophy that rather than punish people for crimes, has tried to change them, rehabilitate them. Well, what we have shown is going all back to when this process started, that we can statistically show the possibility of 2% success. In other words, with all the money that's being poured into the prison situation and trying to rehabilitate with all, with all the counseling, the psychiatric help and all, they've got a 2% success. So suffice it to say, there is no way that any psychiatrist or anybody can offer any proof or document or show anything that this great group of philosophers, whether it's Plato or Socrates or, the, or, or some psychiatrist or some counselor, goes in and begins to talk to people who have been brought up in a certain lifestyle and is able to persuade them that, hey, this is wrong and you ought to do it this way. It just simply doesn't work. The only force that has ever did that in the, in the whole history of the human race is Christianity. And, and so here is Paul that goes into the kind of atmosphere we talked about, and somebody is going to have to deal with the fact, from an effect standpoint, that he changed thousands of lives. And people renounced. In fact, he was so successful that, remember, that uh, the, the men who were in the trade of making the idols, they rose up against him and wanted to have him killed or put in jail because he was being so successful that they were concerned about their whole business going by the wayside, that he was persuading so many people that idolatry was a fraud. And right. Called all his comrades together and said, listen, our whole trade has been called into disrepute since Paul came to town, you know, and, and, and he's pre preaching this and says, what's going to happen the world over if people stop worshiping the great Diana snow? So the point is, he was having tremendous effect so much so, now let's look at it, let's pursue it on beyond Ephesians, so much so that by the time Christianity is through, in the first century, just the first century, we wipe out idolatry in the Roman world. But we're not talking about a, but, but a future year's time. Idolatry, now we're not saying we wipe out sin, but I'm saying idolatry, they do such a good job in, in proclaim, proclaiming the true God and backing it up that idolatry is wiped out in the Roman world in just a little over a generation's time, and we come to the end of the first century, and we don't have no idolaters. And, and even the Muslims to this day believe in a one spiritual God and totally reject idolatry. They were influenced by Jews and Christians. In other words, Muhammad, uh, his whole philosophy owes its origin to a combination of first Jews 
and then Christians. And so that whole area of Muslims in that whole part of the world, idolatry is wiped out. In fact, there's no quicker way to lose your life than to go to any one of those countries over in the Arab countries or any of them and try to practice some form of idolatry. It won't stand. But the point is, that's the effect. How did this little physically sick guy, the Apostle Paul, in a few years' time, effect that tremendous change? And I'm saying the fact that it happened is evidence that he had more going for him than just words itself. All right, another thing, when these people at Ephesus received the letter, just like they received it in Galatians, we can do with Ephesians, just like we did with Galatians last week. I can go back and show that the oldest complete manuscript of it goes back to about 250 A.D. I can show that the oldest complete version that we have goes back to about 150 A.D. I can then go back into the writings of the early church fathers in the first century, and I can show that the book of Ephesians has been totally quoted from every single solitary word in that. And so you can't quote from something that doesn't exist, and that's from material written at the time of the apostles. And so having that material then, we also go back and show historically, as a matter of fact, that this letter came to those people, and here it is, the acid test of history is that something is written as refutable testimony. It's written and published when people are alive who can refute it. This letter goes into Ephesus. It gets circulation. Paul talks about miracles. He talks about their miraculous gifts and the gift of the Holy Spirit they have <coughs> in all the letters that come out of there. And we don't have anything where anybody contradicts. Says, hey, Paul, you're wrong. What's he talking about or anything like that? In fact, the interesting thing is it, that even the pagans in protesting and fighting Christianity, never one time in all their writing do you find them standing up and saying, hey, this is nonsense. There's no miracles being done. Now, like the Jews, in their writings, they may attribute that miracle to the power of demons or to sorcery or something like that. But nobody steps up and says they know that the, the impact itself was based on the miracles. And so... The evidence, all evidence, is of such a nature that we would have to go contrary to all the revealed facts that we have in history to reject the, the information that's there. And then keep in mind what Paul's going to do also is to show that the very thing that happens was predetermined before by God many, 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 many years before and is in itself the fulfillment of prophecies written hundreds of years in advance. So suffice it to say, that's all we'll say on the evidence standpoint, other than say we could go even further, and you could wrap this up so that you could prove to any honest person without any doubt that it was inspired by God and that this effect happened, and you could even go to secular history and read about the establishment of the Lord's Church in Ephesus and the conversion of all those thousands of people and the impact that they began to have on the world at that point. Anybody have any uh, comment on the introduction itself before we get into the material now? Was this uh, Diana? Uh, how did they conjure her up? Was, was she somebody? No, they, she was just the name they give to her, and it was uh, just a female goddess. Uh, the when you read of the Asherah, that's a female goddess. Baal was a male goddess. Chemos was a male goddess. All right, every locality had a god and they had a name on it. Like, for example, Chemosh was the god of the Moabites. Uh, Murdoch was the god of the Babylonians. 
So everything that he craved or wanted, he put that in his gods. So the gods they created warred and fight, fought. Uh, they were jealous of one another. Uh, they did things to one another. Uh, they, they committed adultery, you know, and they were guilty of homosexuality. They were guilty of everything. And, and so if their gods do it, then obviously it's right. So, but they simply took from their self and their own practice, projected that on the gods, well then see what they do. They legitimize it in their own mind, in their own conscience. You can do something in good conscience if your God does it. And so those people could war, and they could hate, and they could commit homosexuality, and they could commit fornication, and they could do all of this because their gods did those particular things. Well, then you can also see that how with all of this going on from within the situation, how that, uh, how that, if, when Paul comes in and starts teaching the other, the interesting thing is that they leave something that allows them to always go in the direction of the lust of their own flesh for something that causes them to always say no and to control it. Peter, you want to sit over here? You sitting in that chair, your neck kind of gets no, tired. No, I'm not. You sure? Yeah. You're welcome to sit over here. I did want that. No, I did that. Uh, Jerry, you sleep? About 12 before he gets here most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> time to go to bed before he gets here. We're about ready to go to sleep generally. <laughs> <coughs> oh, okay, let's start. If you didn't come here, we wouldn't have any of my jokes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. All right, notice this is just a little part of something to notice because of our misuse of it. Notice he, he uses the term, not Jesus Christ, but Christ Jesus. There in the first part of verse 1, both times. Okay? And literally, that Christ shouldn't even be capitalized. That uh, that is the Greek word, Christus, that means simply the anointing one. And if you were reading that, it was translated, it would say, an apostle of the anointed Jesus, the will of God. In other words, Jesus' name was simply Jesus. People didn't even have two names back then, the first and last name. It was Jesus, son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth, and are in the same Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, there, there were no first and last names. And Christ is a Greek word that means anointed. Uh, Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed. And when they translated that, that should have really been just simply the anointed Jesus by the, by the will of God. So he's been sent out by the anointed one of God, of course, Jesus is made, to the saints in Ephesus. Now, notice there that everybody in Ephesus that was a Christian was a saint. The New Testament usage of the word saints is applied to all believers. The word saint, again, is simply a word that means the separated ones. And to, it comes to the word sanctify. And so if you sanctify something, you separate it. You say this is holy. And so the Christians were saints 
in the sense that as a result of obeying the gospel, God in his mind has separated them from the rest of the world, and they're set apart for his people, and they belong to him, and he's passed over their sins, and they're going to be saved, and so they're set apart people. The idea of conjuring up a type of thing where certain individuals, after being especially good, are called a saint, like Saint Matthew or Saint Christine or whoever, you know, that uh, Saint Nicholas and all. This came about years later uh, as the Catholic Church began to evolve. And, and they really borrowed their concept there from the pagans. And the pagans believed that when you died and went into the demon world, that if you were an extra uh, good pagan, you could become a god over in that realm. Well, then as those people were converted to Christianity, and as they, to certain various degrees, uh, brought that in with the Christian teaching, we have a situation where when people die, if they've been an especially good person, then they become a saint, you see. And, and so we, and we began to think of it in that way. But in reality, as we can see here, everybody in a church is a saint. He's just simply set apart by God. And even the usage of the Gospels, like St. Mark, St. Matthew, that's okay. But Mark was no more a saint than I am or you are. They just, and it doesn't mean that he's a holier than thou or that he's better than anybody else. It just simply means he's been set apart for God. Those are his obedience to the gospel. All right. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Now, the first thing he does is point out that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. Look at that in verse 3. Every spiritual blessing is in Christ. Uh, the New Testament emphatically, all the way through, makes it clear that, uh, just like in Acts 4 and 12, there's no other way that an individual can be saved except in Christ. And all spiritual blessings are in Christ. And then he says that, that in love, uh, verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. And this word predestined means predetermined. And he said that even before they were born, God had predetermined. God knew that man would sin. And he knew that man would fall away from him. And so God had predetermined in his own mind, how am I going to work this out? How am I going to get fallen man? How am I going to unite him with me again? God had predetermined that eventually man would be adopted as a result of the sacrifice of Christ and the covering of his sins in Christ. And this is something that, that although history happened before Christ, that all the time we were under the law of Moses, all the time going all the way back to Abraham, Going all the way back to the very beginning, from the very first, God already had predetermined in his mind that this is this is the way it was going to be. Now this is one of those passages, Paul, where the is it Calvinist to believe in predestination? Yeah. Predestination is true, and it's not true. Okay, and it depends on the sense. It is true in the sense that God looks in the future and he predetermines to do certain things. Okay? They use it, Calvin used it in a sense that you have no free choice at all. You're just a robot. And God has predetermined that some people would be saved and some be lost. If you happen to be one of the predetermined ones, at the right time God will call you, whether you won't be saved or not. If you're not, then you're damned. And so that everything is in the hands of God. Well, God predetermines in the same way that we're finite. Uh, anything God does in an infinite way, we do in a finite way. All right, we predetermine. A lot of times, based on our knowledge of what's going to happen next week, we make up our mind that, well, as a result of that happening, I'm going to do such and such. 
So, so, you have so that, that may be as close as, you, as, as one might get to understand providence. In it. Although the word providence don't occur in the, in the New Testament, that word well, implies it doesn't. Okay, providence, the literal meaning of the word, is God working in history. Okay? All right? The way God works is is because of his working in the affairs of man. In other words, when you say that it's the providence of God, God working to bring things about. But I'm saying that, that it works through, uh, through, his, through his foreknowledge and not through his forecausation. That, in other words, because God knows what people are going to do, because he perfectly knows our hearts and all, that he's always able to make the right decision and everything and to know it and, and to know in advance. But from the standpoint of God just causing, uh, like for example, Judas. Uh, Jesus told Judas he'd betray him before he did. He told Peter he denied. God didn't cause that. They did it on their own free will. It's just he knew. Alright? When when Jesus was crucified, uh, Peter in in Acts said he has, this was, in fact, let's flip back there. Hold your place there and flip back there. That's a good example of what you're talking about in, in history and in providence. Acts 2, Look at, uh, let's say, Acts 2 and verse uh, <coughs> uh, let's see, 20, 22, okay, verse 22, Acts 2, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth is a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. But God raised him from the dead. All right, notice God's foreknowledge and purpose allowed this to happen. <coughs> but he says, you, by the hands of lawless men, put him to death. All right, what he said there, and here is God providentially working in history without, throughout history, without tampering with anybody's free will. God knew that when, when Jesus came and when he rebuked the hypocrisy of his days and exposed the religious leaders as hypocrites and rebuked sin and all, God knew that they would kill him. And he knew that. And because so what he knew God... What, he knew what they were thinking at the time. Right. They were looking for something else, and he knew that they would never see what he was bringing them back there. Right. And he knew, obviously, they'd kill him. <laughs> but he, and he knew, he knew that they were... Uh, he knew that they were crucified. Right. right. So what God did, he didn't have to allow it to happen. It's like <coughs> Jesus said on the, to Pilate. Uh, that if my kingdom were this world, I could call on ten legions of angels. Uh, you know, he didn't have to allow it. God made a decision. His foreknowledge saw that they would want to kill him. So God made a decision. He predetermined to allow them to do it. And then after they did it, to do two things. Use that as the sacrifice for man's sins 
and demonstrate God's love for man, and then two, to raise him from the dead and demonstrate his power over life and death and give hope to everybody that's going to die and to put his stamp of approval on everything that Jesus said. And so they did it of their own free will. God saw what they was going to do. Couldn't stop it. But what he did, he told in advance what they were going to do in the Old Testament scriptures so that when it did happen, it would fulfill those prophecies that God saw and proved the inspiration of the event and those writers. He allowed them to do it, knowing all the time that he was going to call him forth from the grave. And then, as Paul's going to get to in, in Ephesians, the great mystery that they didn't understand in the Old Testament of how he was going to pull Jew and Gentile together and give the remission of sins and save people in Christ, God already was in the process of working that out and he would do it. But again, all the way through this, we have God working in the affairs of men. That's providence. But not, not by tampering with anybody's will. There's not a single instance in, all, instance in all the Bible where God ever tampers with a will. It's just that God knows, and because he knows in advance, he can prevent it in some way. Just like for the angels are God's tools that he's used in providence, and like the Hebrew writer said, that the angels are ministering spirits for those who would inherit salvation, Hebrews 1 and 13, 14. And so God can intervene or he can allow it to happen, but he does not tamper with will. And then if it's happening, well, he just simply allows the happening of it. In other words, that just like so far as we should have took that off the hook while we started. In this, uh, in this thing of all the on book, you know, you said that, that Christ shouldn't be capitalized. Yeah. And then they capitalize this here, okay? Now, what I'm thinking is, I wonder what what text they, what Greek text they use. Where are you at now? Well, like Christ here. Oh, but see, that's really not. If you were reading that in Greek, there's no capital, no small letters. You just read Christus. <coughs> see, they've done that. See, when I turn back over this, no, this, this it's all it's all written either in all caps or all small. The uh, capitalization of words is a is an English and Western type thing, but in the Greek, uh, you, you deter, in fact, it's it's quite a bit different than, than the English. See, see that see the same letter there. Yeah, and it says hard right. The word itself, you know, in, in the Greek, that it was pronounced by the Greek as sort of like Christus. <coughs> and uh, and and when they when they would say Christus, they were saying in Greek the anointed one. And the the Jews said Messiah. And he was saying the anointed one. Messiah is Hebrew for the anointed one. Christus is Greek for the anointed one. But what the translators did, instead of translating that word, they transliterated it. And when you transliterate a word, what you do is you take that word from the original language, and you don't translate it into your language, you just bring this over. And so we come up with a word Christ that has no meaning in the English language. So to get the meaning of it, you've got to go back to the Greek. So then we wind up with a fallacy of people using Jesus Christ like a first and last name, when that's not it. Just like we saw that Paul 
is more apt to say Christ Jesus than Jesus Christ. And you say it either way. But Christ is simply a word, a Greek word. Did you take it off here? A Greek word that means the anointed one. And so his name was Jesus. And it's just the anointed Jesus. Well, the point anointed is, God. The point is, point, see, uh, when, see, this is taken from uh, uh, the Greek text used in this book is the Pentecost edition of Everhard Maxwell's Noble right. Testament of Greek. Right. So what he probably did on that is he, he assumed. No, he just put it there for the benefit of the English reader. I mean, I, he would know. Out. He would know that. He put it. It's sort of like the word hell. He's looking at earlier. It's, it's put there for the benefit of the English reader when he's used to. It. But he see, there's a lot of words in there that's transliterated. Uh, when a, the word apostle is not an English word. It's a Greek word, apostolos, and it means the one sent out. That's the literal meaning of the word. And so, when a Greek was reading like the apostles of Christ, what they was really reading, the one sent out of the anointed one. Are the one sent out of Jesus, and just like Barnabas was an apostle, I've heard people say, "Well, it says you only have twelve apostles, and Barnabas is an apostle." And that's right. That wasn't a holy name to them. It was just the one sent out. When Barnabas was sent out by a particular church, then he was the apostle of that church, the one sent out of that church. Uh, baptism is a, a transliterated word. Uh, baptism is a Greek word, baptizo, that simply means immersion or submersion, that's the whole meaning of the word, it's just simply immersion. But then, instead of translating that word, they transliterated it in the English language and just put the word baptism. And there's several other words, you know, of the same of the same vein. And they come up with an English word that really has no meaning. You have to go back and you know, look at the Greek to get it. No, it's probably um, I think a lot of people have problems, and I don't understand it too. We first stated that the fact that you know if God if God already knows what we're going to do, you know how we're going to react, you know it's almost you can see how people say, well, you know why do anything, you know? But then when you really understand it, when you think about it, you can understand, it, you know, he, he's not causing anything. I have the <coughs> I can choose any way I want, anybody else can, but it's just that he has the knowledge he already knows. So I think sometimes. Well, it's basically it's kind of hard to get that concept. I think people have a hard time. The uh, in uh, Acts or Romans eight, he says, "All God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become heirs of eternal life. And whom He predestined, He also called. Whom He called, He also justified. And then He goes on to say, If God be with us, who can be against us? What He's saying right there is that." God predetermines, but not through <coughs> forecausation, it's through foreknowledge. And so God knows the hearts of people and what they're going to do even before they do, just like Jesus told Judas he'd betray him before he was. He told Peter he would deny him. He didn't cause it. And he said, I, he even told Peter, he said, I've already prayed for you. And, but he said, but he said he knew he was going to do it. And so God, based on his foreknowledge, is able to work out a plan for everything without tampering with anybody's will. It'd be just like you and I operating in the stock market. We could all be millionaires without causing anything. If we had foreknowledge, you just you know just exactly how to act. Uh, you could control anything with knowledge. I mean, if you've got foreknowledge, uh, Great Britain, that little bit of England, that little bit of country <coughs> could whip Russia if they had foreknowledge.
if they always if they always knew exactly what everybody every leader in Russia was thinking and knew their actions before they were going to do it, they'd defeat them. In fact, in uh, World War II, uh, the, the the German generals were baffled at, the, at how that a smaller English army was defeating them over North Africa. And what was happening, the English had one of the most fantastic spy systems in the world in the last war. And as a result, they used a very small number of people in a very effective way. Uh, the British won down in the Falklands because of our information, uh, intelligence gathering information, and our satellite that every time that the Brazilians or the Argentinians did anything, the British knew in advance what was going to be done. And so they went down there with that little bitty fleet with them and humbled that big country. So you could know, if you know in advance without causing anything, you have control. So God is omniscient. He knows everything. And that's why, that, like, like uh, Barbara mentioned, that it sometimes seemed difficult, and this is where Calvin uh, got off, when he looked at the foreknowledge and came to the conclusion, well, you may as well, everything's in the hands of God. God, you're either predestined to be saved, predestined to be lost, nothing you can do about it. But the thing of it is, God made us in his image, and he gives us free will, and we exercise that. And, and God does not interfere with our choice at all, but God knows our choices, and he knows the choice of everybody. And because of his foreknowledge, God is always able to act in such a way that is for the good of those that love him. And that's why the Paul makes a statement, God causes all things to work together for good for those that love him, who he foreknew, he also predestined to become heirs of eternal life. Um, when the Ethiopian eunuch obeyed the gospel, and remember Philip was sent directly to him, he didn't surprise anybody in heaven. God knew his heart and knew he would respond, and that's why he sent Philip to him. On the other hand, somebody might say, well, what about this individual that literally, personally, did not hear the gospel? Well, you got to keep in mind that God knows his heart. And God knows whether or not that he'll respond or anything like that. Uh, that also helps you to understand uh, uh, something that would be a problem to every one of us. Uh, here's this individual that, at 23 years of age, who is not a Christian, and is a, a rank sinner, was killed in an automobile accident. And here's this guy that's been a rank sinner for 40 years, and then at 41, he obeys the gospel. And we look at that and we say, hey, is that fair? If this rank sinner at 23 had lived to be 41, maybe he would have obeyed the gospel. From our standpoint, but God knows his heart. If that person had a heart that would submit to the gospel, nobody knows that any better than God. And, and so that whether to chastise a person in providentially and bring them to the point of repentance and all, uh, or to allow them to suffer the full consequence and all, God, because of his perfect knowledge, always knows just exactly what to, what to do and how to act. But his, his foreknowledge allows God to completely dominate all the affairs of man without, without doing anything to anybody's decision. And we make our own decisions. And we decide whether we're going to obey God or disobey Him, whether we're going to sin or not sin. In fact, if you didn't, you couldn't be accountable before God. And that's where our accountability comes in. But His knowledge of our heart and everything allows Him to have control all the time. Uh, God has always been able to bring to power uh, whoever he wanted. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib, and all those people in the Old Testament that God made it clear that uh, Pharaoh, that he actually providentially watched over them and brought them to power because he had a particular use for them. And so Paul, in introducing this, makes it clear that this whole thing about the gospel has been predetermined 
by the Lord himself, and it was always God's, his plan that people who had sinned would eventually all be adopted as his sons again in Jesus Christ, at least those that responded to him. Well, Paul, that's in Romans the ninth chapter where he's talking about Pharaoh. You know, but he, you know, and Pharaoh was used as a vessel of wrath. And uh, let me ask you a question. I don't want to spend all night on that. Because I know you got other posts over there Are, uh, Do you think God knows how He knows to go wind up? Sure. There's nothing God is omniscient. There's nothing He doesn't know. Knows everything. Just like uh, in Psalms, that word That's a good point. Hold your place right there. That, that's real good with the Jack brought up. Turn over to Psalms 139. Huh? I said, that's where I thought. Psalms 139. Okay, uh, Jack, let's see if we're going to read that minute. <coughs> Jack, could you read that through verse 16, please? Psalm 139. Now listen carefully to that. 1 verse 16. Uh -huh. Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thoughts and thoughts. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my line down. And art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word. Before the Lord thou dost know it Thou hast enclosed me behind the fork, and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too noble it is too high, I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from the Spirit, or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art If I make my bed in slow, behold, thou art if I take the wings of the ground, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me. And thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, Surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to me, and the night is not bright in the day. Darkness and light are alike to me, for thou didst from my inner parts. Thou didst weed me in my mother's womb, and will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderful man. Wonderful Lord, I work, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee, and I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unborn face, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me. Yeah, Look at that last statement. <clears throat> All the days that were ordained were written in your book before one of them came to be. And then the statement over there early, that before uh, before the words even come from my mouth, he says, you already know it. And then he goes on to say, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, I cannot attain it. In other words, David takes his finite mind and he says, I cannot comprehend that. I just know that it's know that it's so. 
Well, somebody said, well, how can you know that's so? Basically, in the statement, that's where the, the prophecies of the Bible come in from the standpoint of the proof of inspiration. The, the greatest proof of the inspiration of the entire Bible is these multitude, literally hundreds of prophecies that go throughout <coughs> the Bible where these men constantly speak of events, sometimes hundreds of years before they take place, and then they take place in exact detail, I mean, of what happens, whether it's a city rising or a city falling, uh, whether it, like in the case of Cyrus, who calls a man by name over 150 years before he's even born and what's going to happen and all, or, of course, the great prophecies of telling everything about Jesus and his life and his crucifixion and resurrection and everything out throughout places. So obviously, he couldn't do that unless that was the case. But yet we still stand back and marvel you know, at the fact that, like David said, that such knowledge is too wonderful for me. But really, I think you think, too, anything less than perfect knowledge would be something less than God and something less than what Paul perfect. When you consider all of and everything, it's not too wonderful for me. Really considered the stars and the, you know, universe and everything and what is mad, then that that doesn't, you know. Well, and like when David speaks of that, just as the prophecies are the constant telling of the fantastic mind of God that He knows everything and the fulfillment and proof of the inspiration, then David would say like the glories declare the the the, the heavens that declare the the work of God and the firmament His handiwork. That, that he literally says that when we look out and we see these that, that, that yeah. all the wayside right. will as the fabulous sure. fabulous seed just like he knew right. Judas would betray. But from the human standpoint, all he can do is, is what Paul said, make you call an election sure. Sure. Do these things and make it sure. Right. Just because God knows what you're gonna do, you don't know. Well, not only that, you have control, it's just God knows your decision. Uh I think I think one, one way to think about it is that anything God does in the infinite, we do in the finite. You and I have the ability to come to know a person so well that we can do a very good job of knowing how they're going to react under certain situations. In fact, uh, all government jobs should require uh, secret information and things like that. Look at uh, Mark. Uh, you you should probably do some uh, yeah, a little bit of foreknowledge and got you here on time. Mark, that's a good example. Did not tamper with your will, but based on his foreknowledge, based on his knowledge of your beha past behavior, he says, now, you will do this. So if I tell him this, that'll get him there on time, and he got you here on time, and you made your own decision. <laughs> what a lesson. <laughs> but we do. We, uh, uh, we give our government gives psychological testing uh, for certain jobs because we know that uh, that by if you can learn a personality so well that you can be very very accurate not 100% because we're finite but we can be accurate to a high degree of determining how people's going to act. Well, every time a nation like Russia gets a new leader, the first thing we do is look at their personality and size them up, and then based on like for example when Gorbachev come in. We right away begin to say, here and here and here is where things are going to change in Russia because of the personality of that man. And so far, he hasn't disappointed anybody. You know, he's, he's acted per, just exactly like we thought like we thought he would. And we, if we could do that in a finite basis, and of course, we can do it with children uh, in a much better sense than we can with adults. But if we can do that in a finite sense, then, then we figure that we're operating with imperfect knowledge, 
God operates with perfect knowledge, and so he simply does it in a perfect sense. So in verse 5, what Paul says, he predestined us to be adopted to son. He's saying that, that he allowed things to happen, the events to unfold, so that we could be adopted. Right. He predetermined that the way everybody was going to be saved was in Jesus. Right. That he predetermined that this is the way it was going to be used. In other words, it'd be, it's going to be limited to those who respond to his grace. But he predetermined that that's going to be the way. Uh, the way that people would be adopted as sons is through Christ. And he already had determined that in advance. Jeremiah 1, 5, 6, 6, 6, 6, 6, 6, 6, 6, 6, 6, 6, 6, 6, 6, in Galatians 1.15 said that from the womb he set apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, all the years he was persecuting the church, he did it of his own free will. But God knew that Paul was acting in ignorance and unbelief. And Paul stated that later himself. And God knew that once that man came to see the truth, that he would not only repent, but would be just as zealous for truth as he had been for what was wrong. And so God had already determined, hey, Paul's an intelligent person. He's got Roman citizenship. He's a persecutor of the church. When I convert him, it's going to be one of the greatest evidences for Christianity. He's got the best mind to write half the New Testament. His Roman citizenship, he's the ideal man to go to the Gentiles. And so before that man was ever converted, he already had been handpicked by God to be the preacher of the Gentiles and write half the New Testament. And again, God didn't cause any of it except his foreknowledge knew and then was able to use it and to act at the right time. What is the passage that, in essence, those who, that he knew that one that would do his will and those who would not? Uh, you're talk, you, I don't know if you're talking about John 7, 17, where it says, Him that will to do his will will know of the teaching when I speak of my man. I don't know. He knew from the beginning who was the lady. Oh, you're talking about uh, John 6. John 6, in the latter part there, John 6, I believe that's right. John 6, and verse, uh, let's see, 64. Yeah, 64, John 6. There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, who would betray him. Remember that uh, when Peter denied him, he already knew it. <clears throat> he knew Peter wouldn't even accept it. But he said, I prayed for you. And he knew that Peter was going to repent. And then when he repented, he wanted to go ahead and strengthen the brethren. But he already knew that. He also knew about, uh, remember when uh, Judas <coughs> betrayed him, Zechariah in the 11th chapter actually forecasted that the Messiah would be betrayed by one that loved him and even for 30 pieces of silver. So you got absolute perfect foreknowledge, but yet not tampering with anybody's will. Okay. Okay, let's go back there and start. He's predetermined all this to happen, not forecaused it, but determined because of his foreknowledge. 
And then look, come on down to verse 11. He uses the term again. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him works. Again, it's all we've been chosen. We've been predetermined to this end by God. And then come on down to verse 13, the middle of the verse. Having believed, you were marked with him a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guarantee in our inheritance is of the redemption. Well, what happened when Paul converted those people, remember, the Bible hasn't been completed yet. They don't have a New Testament or anything of that nature. And so you read in Acts 19 that Paul laid hands on those people, imparted those gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so here are these people, those gifts of the Spirit served as a constant guarantee or proof to them that that message was, was true, that it was, that it was going to come about exactly that way. Just like we studied last week in Galatians, that when he was arguing against the uh, Jews, he's saying, how did you receive these gifts of the Holy Spirit? By the hearing with faith or by the practicing of the law of Moses? Of course, they knew the, they knew the answer to that. Okay, uh, verse 17, I keep asking that God, our Lord, that, that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So here are people that have been converted. Uh, they have come to a certain knowledge, but we can see there again their knowledge is not perfect. And it's not up to Paul's. And his desire is that they may come to an even better knowledge. Well, then the question is, how are they going to come to that better knowledge? You just hold your place right there. And we'll let's skip on up in that same, right here in the third chapter. Flip on over to the third chapter. Uh, let's see. Uh, Mark, would you read that 1 through 5, please, in Ephesians 3? Uh, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Okay, so he says, the Spirit revealed this information to the apostles and prophets. But then it says, in reading this, you will be able to understand my insight. In other words, that, that you and I did not come to know and understand this because the Holy Spirit, in some mysterious way, revealed it to us. The Holy Spirit revealed it to the apostles and prophets, just like Moses was a chosen man and the prophets were chosen. The apostles and prophets were chosen men, and the Holy Spirit revealed that information to them. And then, like Paul says, he's writing this, and he says, when you read this, then you'll be able to understand this information that's been revealed to me. And when he refers to it as a mystery uh, that has now been uh, a revelation, a mystery of something that you can't figure out because you don't have all the facts. It's like a mystery on TV or the movie. You just don't have all the facts. So in the Old Testament scriptures, all of this business of salvation in Christ and bringing Jew and Gentile together was a mystery because they didn't have all the facts. And, it hadn't, and all those prophecies hadn't happened yet. And so they worked and tried to figure it out, but they didn't figure it out. And now it comes along and God reveals it to the apostles and prophets and so how do we come to better understanding? Doing just what we're doing now. As we read and study the New Testament, we constantly come to a better understanding of, of God's will and grow, grow in our knowledge. 
Okay, uh, let's see. Come on down to uh, uh, chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Now, we should notice this word death and life this is used in here. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Now, the New International Version says sinful nature. The literal, the Greek, should, should be flesh. Our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. All right, notice how the word death and life is used there. You're dead in sin, dead in transgressions, alive in Christ. Okay? When we think of death, we think of it with an English connotation of just cessation, no life at all. But the word death comes from the Greek word thanatos, and the literal meaning is separated. And so what happened, what he is literally saying there, is when you were in your sins, you were separated from God. That's literally what it's saying. Every time you read the word death or dead, you can just put the word separated there. You were separated from God because of your sins. But now that your sins have been wiped away, you're no longer separated from God, and therefore you're alive. And so you can be a, you can be dead. Uh, in Timothy, Paul refers to a, a sinful woman that's dead while she lives. And so anybody that is, is spiritually dead that's outside of Christ. And, uh, and then they're spiritually alive when they're in Christ. And, and that's the way, from the spiritual sense, that is life or death, either being united with, with Christ or being separated from him. Uh, physical death will be no more than the separation of the spirit from the body. The word simply, again, means separation. So separation of the spirit from the body is physical death. Separation of the spirit from God is spiritual death. And he's obviously talking about spiritual death here because they were alive and walking around. In one minute they're dead, and next minute they're alive. I think it's real comforting to, like, as far as death, um, the fact that we'll never die, you know, once we're Christian, that it's part of the mental factors that we can know, as far as what we know, the inner person, that we, at that point, we can see in the channel, and, you yeah. know, that we'll never, we'll never die mentally. Well, let me ask you, this is a good one. Do you know what the final stage of a drug war is? <laughs> 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 oh, listen, he turns into something. He turns into a. Uh, does he turn into a Junda? Yes. You told me that. I knew I picked that up somewhere. Okay, so you take everything. At the drug war's death, he gets to fly. At a caterpillar's death, he gets to fly. Right. And so the least we could do is fly. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you look at all those different things that change by step. Yeah. It relates to the same thing. Yeah. I mean, exactly. about that, Joe. There is a sense in which nothing is destroyed but only changed. Joe, that's a good point. That, well, I, uh, I, what that baffled me was good bugs were always in the ground. You notice, the first time you see them, they're the ground. Remember, you know, look them aboard, there's a speed bug. How did you get in there? I think I figured that out. Did you? <laughs> Look in a book and it says the grub runs the June bug larvae. 
But that is a good example of even the change thing that uh, even the caterpillar to a butterfly, that's hard to imagine that that's the same thing. What's the other one? Six and well, you got the whole process, the change of in nature itself, where all of the vegetation and trees and all seem to die and lose everything into the spring, uh, like a resurrection. They simply right. come, come to life again. At, at, a, at a certain time, too. Yeah. <coughs> okay, because, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. All right, now these next verses are, I think, the key to the whole thing about salvation. Of course, we studied this in the contrast in Galatians. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works that come from Christians do not earn their salvation. We talked about that in the, the misunderstanding of Jews, the misunderstanding of legalism in Christianity today. Uh, with any people of any group that looks at it and says, I'm going to be saved because I do such and such, and that's good. You know, she's going to be saved because she was a good woman or he was a good man. Well, that's great to do good things, but no one of us are good enough to be saved in and of our own merits. We all fall short. We do good because we have been saved and we love him and we appreciate the sacrifice and we express our thanksgiving to God and trying to walk as Christ-like as we can and try to become Christ-like all our life. But we've been saved by grace, through faith, not of works. There is absolutely nobody that can pat himself on the chest and say, God, you're saving me because I'm a good guy. It's just not so. And so the, the good word, the whole business, and, and, and the interesting thing is the whole denominational concept of, of people dividing up and pointing the finger at one another or saying, I'm saved and he's not, is generally based around the fact that I'm right on this point and he's wrong. Or I do this more right than that person. I keep this day and he doesn't know he's supposed to. Or I do this and he doesn't understand that. And in reality, now there's, we're not saying that we don't study all of that. And that you don't do it to the best of your ability. And that it would also we'll see here in Ephesians. You cannot engage in willful sin that you don't repent of and, and stay safe. We'll see that Paul will get to that. You know, There's no, no question about that. But the point is, we're not saved because we happen to worship in a correct way. And a, and a fellow is not lost because in ignorance he may be doing some particular wrong, thing wrong or something like that. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And, and what that does, that takes away all boasting. I can never stand up and say, hey, I'm saved because I have spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of studying the Bible and I've studied Greek and I've researched and everything like that and, and therefore God's going to save me. That I'm saved in Christ. And that's the only way. And I have nothing to boast of. And nothing, neither does any other person. And so nobody ever has any right to throw their chest out uh, to be like the Pharisee who looked down on the publican or anything like that because we know that we're saved 
in him. And that's it. We have no right to be self-righteous or to look down on anybody else, but only to condemn the sin and, and want that person to be saved also. Okay, now, but then he goes on in verse 10, he says, We are God's workmanship created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, what Paul is is going to do, and, and he says it in the books, other books, and John says it too, and the question is, how's God going to get us to become good people when we've been bad so long? Well, as a result of, of giving Christ as a sacrifice for our sins, when mankind becomes aware of this, John says that we love him because he first loved us. For the first time, man becomes fully aware of just how much God loves him. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So just as hatred begets hatred, just as though, as Jesus said, those who use the sword will perish with the sword, love begets love. And so that you, if you think about it, you feel good towards those people that affect you in certain ways. And if they do certain, if they treat you in a kind and courteous and fair and just way and they're considerate of your feelings, then you don't have to make yourself say, hey, I need or I should. You just, you just naturally respond to it. And, and you, you respond. Now, if the person is not treating you that way, then because you're a Christian, you force yourself to go the extra mile and to turn your cheek and to overcome evil with good. And that is involved in the agape love. You do what is right simply because it's right, whether you feel like doing it or not. But to have the phileo thing, it, it, it responds only to the actions of the other person. And so all Christians should have phileo for God. They not only agape him, but they should have phileo in the sense that he has done this for us. Our natural response is to love him. And so, well, what happens when you love somebody? If you love somebody, you want to please them. And so Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, we don't go around keeping the commandments of God because uh, we're trying to show everybody how good we are. We, we know those commands are right, and we love the Lord, and he wants us to live that way, so we're going to do it to the very best of our ability. And so we look at it completely different than uh, people that walk like some of the Jews were walking and look at it like a legalistic code that when I do exactly right, and then I'm justified before God. We know that at our best we fall short, but we love him, and therefore we're going to do it to the very best of our ability. Just like tonight, we're here studying the Bible, and, and some of you have driven a long distance. Not because there's any command that says you have to, the Bible just tells you to study, to learn God's Word. But it doesn't tell you how much time to put into it, or how far to go, or what effort to put, or anything like that. You obviously have a love for the Lord, and a love for His Word, and so you're willing to put forth some effort to try and come to a better understanding of it. And that's, and that's true with anybody and anything else that you do. Uh, your children. You, I would say that those of us that are here tonight, we don't even know most of the laws the state has that govern our relationship to the child. Because the truth is, your love for that child will go way beyond what everything the legality of the law requires. And so you don't need the governor or Uncle Sam to come along and, and say, you need to feed that child, and you need to clothe that child, and you need to show affection to that child. I mean, that, you know, to a person who loves a child, you don't need that. <coughs> now, there are people who need somebody to do that, and they're the ones who don't love the child. 
And they're the ones that sometimes the government has to step in and take that child away from them simply because they don't love that child and it's expressed in the action itself. But if you love your child, you don't need anybody to step in and say all that. You, you just simply naturally fulfill that kind of thing. Now, just a segment, and I'm sure I'll like to first, um, that people, you know, well, when I get old, or I'm getting old, so I need to get myself right with God, I think that shows uh, uh, legality. They think that, you know, well, you know, Too. You know, I'm concerned about self, and so I'm just concerned about being saved. I need to get right now. Well, right. right. no, I'll tell you what, Hugh, for, uh, for the first 12 years that I was a, a what I thought was a gospel preacher, all I was was a fire, fire insurance salesman. <laughs> I don't like to hear that, but that's all I did. I sold fire insurance. It, if you wanted to, anyway, we had a pretty good policy. Hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, and do two or three other things, and come to the church three times a week. In our foreign church, now that now we couldn't compete with Baptists, you know, they didn't. They just said you had to do one thing, you know. So we come up, we come up with a short end of the stick. But we had, a, you know, I was strictly a foreign so church. They, so they didn't do much to change and make anybody more strict. No, not that. You, you can sell fire insurance and and get people because they're scared of hell. But the Lord didn't scare people into becoming Christians. The separation from God is just there as a natural consequence that God has no choice on. God is holy and just. And when we sin, we separate ourselves from him. And God has no choice in his. His own nature demands it. And so rather than holding hell to you as something that God is saying, hey, you better do this to get out of that, the scripture is a loving, kind, heavenly father that says, hey, look what you're doing to yourself. You've separated yourself from me. You've brought all these consequences on you. And my justice has no choice but to do this. Uh, you, you're forcing me to be unjust to do anything else. But then in my love, I give you Christ. And then you've got a loving Heavenly Father, like look at Peter on the day of Pentecost. Hey, you people, save yourself from this untoward and crooked generation. In other words, that, that you're already in what we would call hell and, and headed for a se eternal separation from God. And then you've got a loving Heavenly Father that's pleading, hey, look at my gift and get out of that sin and get out of the condemnation you're already in and have the remission of your sins and eternal life. And so, and that's the, the way. Instead of getting up there and, and, and talking to people and painting, what you'll never find in the New Testament, painting a fiery hell and say, now, when you go to hell, you're going to burn and you're going to be in agony and and this is how it's going to hurt, and this is going to happen. And then as one sermon I heard on hell, one old boy just come running down the aisles crying and saying, I don't want to go to hell when I die. Well, I hope he knew something about the Lord before he got there that night because he didn't, he didn't hear anything at night. You know, he, heard, he heard all about hell. But the point is that we are in a condemned condition right now, and we're going to die. And, and, and we're suffering all the consequences of sin. And we have a loving, kind, heavenly Father uh, that is literally weeping over our condition and is pleading with us to get out of it and to, to enter Christ. And the end result of that knowledge uh, and understanding causes me then when I become a Christian to have this eternal gratitude towards the love and, and for, the, for his love and it motivates my love for him in turn. But the good works are something that we do after we become a Christian and it's simply a people that are simply acting in response to God. Just like you, when somebody treats you in a certain way, 
uh, they do such and such for you, you don't remember. You, you don't forget that. If you're a certain type person and somebody does something for you, you say, hey, I'd like to do something for that individual. You know, they, they've done something for me, and I'd like to do something for them. Uh, if you see this person that is always in tune to other person's needs, and then they need help right away. Nobody has to make you do it to say, hey, I want to help that person out. And you just, you just simply want to do it. Yeah, I think what she was saying bothers me that uh, people that it's like I know the truth and I understand that God wants me to repent and become a Christian, but I'm enjoying the world so much that I'm going to get right before I die. That's extremely selfish and misses. But the thing of it is, getting back to God's foreknowledge, God knows their heart. And that, that doesn't even understand. God doesn't want somebody in heaven who really loves to sin but wants to stay out of the fire. Uh, God wants somebody in heaven who loves him and has responded to it. That would make somebody question these uh, so-called deathbed confessions. Yeah, of course, only God knows her heart. So like the thief on the cross, that uh, <coughs> uh, that guy obviously repented. But his repentance is shown. You know, he said, listen to his statement. You know, he said that he turned to the other thief and he says, listen, we deserve to be here. He said, this man doesn't. The righteous man doesn't. to say that all thieves don't have a good heart. That's, that's totally untrue. Oh, you can be a thief and repent. Like anybody no, else. but I mean, you can be a thief and still care for your fellow man. In other ways. Yeah. I mean, you can mm. have a good heart and still be a thief, but you might be an adulterer, but you're making all the other ones right. You know, you can well, of course, the thing it is, uh, on some of that, Joe, I have problems with a person who has a good heart, but yet will steal. No, I'm talking about uh, before the fact, though. I'm talking about before the knowledge hits them. So. Oh, yeah, you sure. I agree. I, I know a lot of thieves yeah. that were sure. the best people you'd ever want to meet. They give you a shirt off their back. Still a shirt off their back, too. <laughs> they used to wear a life. They used to wear a life for them. Yeah. Uh. Okay, now, verse, look at verse 11. He, he used the word therefore. Therefore means in light of what I've just said. So in light of what I've just said, that, that you've been saved by God's grace through your faith, and, and you don't earn your way, and it's, it's just a free gift of God, therefore remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called in circumcision by those who were called themselves the circumcision, in other words, Jew to the Gentile. Uh, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, you were without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once without a far off, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And then, of course, what he's going to tell them now is that the two Jew and Gentile have become one in Jesus. Verse 14. The two, uh, he's destroyed, uh, the two has been made one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's abolished the, in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. The law of Moses separated Jew and Gentile. Remember Peter, when he went to the house of Cornelius, and he told Cornelius that it is not even lawful for me to come here and eat with him. Verse 28 of Acts 10. But he'd been sent there. And then God told him that what I now call clean, you no longer call unclean. And that the, and Peter was told about you know the eating of these unclean meats and everything. But the law was done away with. The barrier between Jew and Gentile 
and now they've been united together in, into a one new person or one one new church. Uh, come on down. Uh, speaking of the church in uh, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself the chief cornerstone. In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a lofty temple to the Lord. And in Him you are being built together to become a dwelling of God that God lives in by the Spirit. And so the church is not the building, it's a spiritual entity composed of people. And God dwells in the people, not in the building. And then those those people, the world over, who have submitted to the Lord that are in God, and God dwells in them, that is His people. But the sad thing, at least in my mind, is how we uh, put up all these edifices and confuse the world to uh, think that buildings are holy and and separate and divide and all in the, in the way that we do. But God dwells in his people, not in the building, and, and that they are to be used by God to glorify himself. Uh, we've already read that first part of the third chapter where God said that uh, he revealed himself to the apostles and prophets, and when we read that we come to understand this information. By the way, this is also important in that third chapter because of individuals who will come along today and, and will take a passage that is spoken directly to the apostles or prophets and apply it to themselves. And say, then God is speaking through me. And then you've got all kinds of things being taught out there and, and people being said, hey, we believe this because the prophet spoke to Joseph Smith, for example. And so you wind up with the Book of Mormon or something else. Or the Pope who says, you know, God is speaking through him. That's Christ's vicar here on this earth. Or Roberts, God spoke to him that he don't. A and a half, if he don't get eight million dollars by March, he'll he, die. Right. Yeah, but God, God has spoke to the apostles and prophets, and He's revealed the truth, and we get that information as we as we read and study the truth itself. But God has revealed it, and and we have it, and we can read it and study it and understand it. Well, he said that God would strike him dead if he got a vision or something. If he didn't raise four more million between now and March, mm -hmm. and he's playing with people, he's going to the first eight million, and he's collected four million. <laughs> He'll probably get the other four. Uh, well, of course, that's uh, we'll get off with Oral Roberts because a lot to be shown in Oral Roberts. He's a good example of somebody that when the apostles were sent out, Jesus said, Freely you have received, freely give. Uh, Oral Roberts is a millionaire. Uh, he is a flat dab millionaire, and then and then some, and so are a lot of others in that in that same category. But he, yeah, yeah, it's been a number of things. But anyway, that what they do is read passages that, in context, apply to the apostles and prophets, and they apply it just like it's to them. And Paul says right there that we come to an understanding when we read this information that the Spirit is revealed through the apostles and prophets. Okay, verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. In him and through faith in him we approach God with freedom and confidence. And so we see that the function of the church 
is to make known the manifold wisdom of God to all the rulers and authority, rulers and authority, people in authority in heavenly places. And so that uh, when we live in a world with, for example, all the various competing philosophies that we have in this country, uh, that it is the church that's been set up by God to make known the wisdom of God to the world. In fact, if the church doesn't do it, then I don't know who does it. In fact, I differ with the uh, church on a lot, a lot of Christians in a lot of criticism given to the government or to the public schools or anything about not teaching the Bible or not teaching such and such. Uh, the responsibility is, is Christians. And it, it's our responsibility to, to teach. In fact, I don't know why that a Christian parent would want an infidel in the public school system if he was an infidel. we got Christians in the public school system, too. But you don't want an infidel teaching the Bible to your child. That's stupid. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's crazy to argue for it because the public school system has Jewish teachers, it has agnostic teachers, it has atheist <coughs> teachers, and it has Christian teachers. And so if you're going to say the public school system should teach the Bible, then what happens to this atheist that's teaching this particular course in sociology or history or ethics or, or psychology or whatever it is, you know, well, that you're going to have that. But it's the, it's the church, and the thing of it is, if we do our job, there's going to be fewer infidels and atheists and whatnot, and you're going to have more Christians in the school system. In fact, one of the biggest differences in, in public education now, in public education some years back, is that some years back, a bigger percentage of the teachers would have been Christian than they are right now. And now the percentage is smaller. And so all, same, all you have to do to change the school system. The same line is true with any subject, almost. It, right. We're dealing with moral. Right. Uh, whether it's sex education or whatever, would you want uh, same thing. a loose teacher? Sure. Teacher well, they talk about sex education, the whole thing. The same thing. Do you want a teacher who is not moral themselves teaching your child about... Well, public schools do it now. They're, they're teaching them to use uh, uh, prophylactics and things of that nature. And, uh, and going through the, that's what they're teaching in their, in their sex education thing. And they're doing everything but say, hold it until marriage. But uh, again, that I think we make a mistake when we try to force every right thing we believe, the public to teach it, we ought to teach it. And the end result will be, if we are aggressive in teaching Christian principles and in converting people to Christ, then you're going to have more and more teachers that are Christian, that's going to change the public school system. And just like, I mean, for example, in Grundy County, we've got books, the same textbooks they use in other areas, but they're handled completely different here. And the reason is that most of the teachers in our county are believers, and so they're handled completely different. It doesn't matter who writes the book, it's the, it's the person who's handling that book that determines it. And the same thing with uh, our judges on the Supreme Court. In uh, uh, our people in Congress. If more people are converted to Christ, then you're going to have more people that sit in Congress that are Christian, and more people, more, you're more likely to have a, like we're very, at least I think, fortunate now in that whatever agreement or disagreement that you might have with the man that's president now, the fact that he believes in God and is a, you know, a believer in Jesus is, is at least a very positive thing on his behalf. And the same with Carter before him. Whatever complaint anybody had, I was happy at least that they had a man in there that was a believer. Okay, so the church, its purpose, its intent, is to make known the manifold wisdom of God. Okay, now in uh, the uh, Paul ends it by talking about his, his prayer for them. In fact, it's interesting to me to note how many times in here that Paul mentions prayer uh, on their behalf and how many times that he asked 
for prayers or requests of slips. Uh, yeah, turn over to the very last part of the book. And notice the starting with uh, verse 18 after he talks about the armor of the Spirit itself. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, always keep praying for all the saints. Pray also for me. And then he says in verse 20, for which I am ambassador and change, pray that I may declare it fearlessly, the gospel. So we, we see that when it gets even to God's uh, predestination through foreknowledge, that again, somebody might think, well, if God already knows what's going to happen, why spend so much time praying to God about things that are requests and things that we need? Well, according to the Bible, part of God's will is to work through the prayers of faithful people. And just like uh, James uses Elijah and says, uh, Elijah, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availed much. And then he goes on to say that Elijah was a man like you, and he prayed it didn't rain. And he prayed it did rain. The, the, in Elijah's day, Israel was in rank sin. And so Elijah prayed, contrary to a lot of Christians might do it, Elijah prayed for a drought because he wanted those people to realize where their blessings come from. And then after they, they had been humbled and they were thirsty, Elijah prayed and, and he moved. Uh, but uh, he, that, uh, the point that James is making is that, that Christians have power in prayer. And that uh, God, even though God already knows what we're going to do, he doesn't cause it. He just knows what we're going to do. And God has told us that as believers, we have the privilege of prayer. And that part of our growing and maturing and developing in faith and accomplishing the will of God is through our prayers. And so here you've got Paul, an apostle, asking fellow Christians to pray for him so that he may even be more. Well, another thing, apart from, apart, apart from supernatural, okay, apart from that, right. in the natural realm, when, when the person prays, thinks, plans, asks for, or whatever, right. it's hard for him not to go and act out what he wants to if he prays, let's say, for safety of his, of his family and children, right. he wouldn't watch any danger lives or driving too fast or whatever. Right. He's going to do what he can. He, and and God his, mind, his mind is set on that. Well, when you pray, you pray with the understanding that you're going to do what you can do, and God, just like when he says pray for your daily bread, I know God's not going to drop it on the table. What you're praying for is the uh, you want the opportunity to have a good job and everything and you know just like paul teaches in here that it's the will of god that we work with our hands and earn our living and things like that and so we do our part and like paul said if a man won't eat neither let him eat neither let him, if a man won't work neither let him eat and so when we pray we're not we're to pray that god just drop it on the table would actually pray contrary to his will that Paul has said, if a man won't work, he won't eat. We're praying for the opportunities to be able to make a living and to have the health that's necessary and things like that. And the same thing, uh, if uh, somebody is sick and goes to the hospital, uh, all doctors aren't equal. That uh, pray for that, uh, you know, they might get the best doctor and that he might make the best decisions and uh, that in everything that we have to offer in the best sense might be to that person's advantage and everything like that. And, and the providence of God is involved in all that kind of thing. So you pray, and we do what we can, but then all the time leave the things that we can't do up to God and be confident that He'll carry out His part. If it's in keeping with His will, of course, that's what 
John says that pray and be confident, First John 5, 14, 15, but he also said to you know, pray and keep it with God's will. So as a Christian, then there's absolutely no reason to worry. No. That's what that's what Jesus was saying. Uh, that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing it. And he said, you're of more value than the sparrows. And he says, God knows that you have need of food and clothing and shelter. And so that, uh, that seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so he tells us to go through life and put him first and to do what we can in doing right. And there is no need to worry. Uh, when you think about it, doesn't your worry tie in, for example, people that worry, if he was worried about eating, you're not, you're not worried about it right now. You're not going to starve right now. You're worried about no, the future. People worry. People always worry about the things they have no control over. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they had some control over it, they'd go ahead and take care of it. And so I have no control over next week right now. I mean, I can make decisions. But like James says, don't boast of tomorrow. You know, that I don't know whether I'll even be here. So I might be worried about next week. And, and for all I know, I'm going to die at the end of this week. Or the world might be, you know, for all I know. The Lord will, will all stop before then. So from a believer's standpoint, if he understands God's will, worry involves whenever I do it. And it shows again that we're not perfect in faith, just like we're not perfect in love. Whenever we worry, we demonstrate a lack of faith in Christ. And of course, that's what he condemned his disciples for. You know, remember when they were out there being tossed to and fro in that boat? They were scared to death. And he's laying there asleep. <laughs> and, and then he got up and rebuked the wind. He says, peace be still. And then he turned around and them, oh, ye of little faith. Well, why did he say that? If they really believed that he was the son of God, why were they scared of that? And, uh, and then the same thing when he came walking in the water and told Peter, he said, if you believe, you can. And Peter got out there and was doing a good job until he began to doubt. He started to sink. But... Uh, that worry, comes, from a Christian standpoint, comes about because of a lack of trust in God. And it just, that, that amazes me. Whenever you worry, it shows you that you need to work on your trust in Him. Right. But, okay, now, Peter didn't have, uh, in other words, it was up to Peter to keep his feet above top that water. Yeah. Based on, Jesus but, didn't float him up there. Well, God, Jesus gave him the power to do it, conditioned on his faith. Right. And as long as he was walking with his trust, Christ was allowing him to walk in the water. When he began to doubt, he sank. All right. When Christ gave the apostles miraculous abilities in order to confirm their teaching, the first time they tried to heal a person, they failed. And uh, that's when the guy brought the, the boy to him. And they failed it. And they couldn't understand this. This is over Matthew 17. And, 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 and they, they called the Lord in. And the Lord healed him. And they looked at him and says, why couldn't we do it? And he said, because of your little faith. So that he gave them that authority, but he conditioned their authority.